Welcome to the history of anatomy and the history of dissection. In the last um, podcast, we heard an overall view of the illustrative history of dissection, the idea that dissection could be illustrated and that this was a measure, really, of the era in which the um, picture presenting the anatomy of the body was um, executed. Once Henry Gray and Henry Van Dyke Carter came around, there was a sort of sublimation of kind of visual aspiration and it became a more generic, uh, generalised and kind of sterile approach. At least that's my particular view. It became more generic. But in our study of the history of anatomy, there are a number of areas that we want to cover. And the next area we want to go back to is really the beginnings of autopsy and the influence of the papacy on traditional dissection within the Theatre Anatomia. I might start with a, a, um, a quote from the French physician Javier Bichat, 1771-1802, to 1802, died very early at the age of 30, probably from um, tuberculous meningitis, but there's some debate about that. Open up a few corpses, he wrote. You will dissipate at once the darkness that observation alone could not dissipate. And he also wrote later in his Anatomie Générale Appliquée à la Physiologie et la Médecine, the general anatomy as it applies to physiology and medicine, several autopsies will give you more light than 20 years of observation of symptoms. So it was a kind of dig by someone who started out being a physician and ended up being a pathologist uh, at his own fellow physicians. The only point I'd make is that he's called the French father of histology and he absolutely detested and did not trust the microscope. So it's not always a simple view of um, history. Now, firstly, I think we should get our terminology straight. Since our brief is the history of dissection, how is this tied in to the story of autopsy? And in a sense, what is the difference? Dissection is the business of opening up the body so that its structures can be displayed. In a living person, during an operation, tissues are dissected, as, for example, an inflamed appendix or a cancerous tumour. And here the aim is not only to display a particular structure inside the body, but also to delineate and separate it from other structures. Dissection of the dead, on the other hand, is used in a pedagogic sense. The separation of the tissues uses the body as a vehicle for exposition and teaching, and it is in this context um, that dissection can legitimately be called an anatomization. One may also think of an anatomization as a public exercise of dissection. The physical processes, although the same, have in different contexts a kind of different intent. An anatomization overlaps with the examination of the dead body for the specific purpose of finding the cause of death, where we use the term autopsy, the Greek coming from autop, autos, self, and opsis, sight. So really kind of self-sight or post-mortem after death. Uh, used both terms are uh, interchangeable, autopsy and post-mortem. The business of anatomization as a teaching exercise has historically gained traction because of a greater public acceptance of autopsy. 
In other words, uh, that there was a greater acceptance of dissecting or opening a body for in inquisitive means if autopsy had been accepted uh, socially. And in the identification of the cause or causes of death, autopsy has the potential, obviously, for both a personal and a collective good, even though autopsy was conducted or begun at a time when nobody knew anything about the cause of illness and therefore the cause of death uh, was not necessarily defined by autopsy. Nevertheless, that's the difference between definition and aspiration. For now, we have to accept the idea that autopsy came about initially to determine why someone might have suddenly or unexpectedly died at a time when there was virtually no understanding of disease and when there was no real conceptual approach in appreciating or recognising the notion of etiology in discrete fatal illness. Before autopsy, it was imagined that all disease was animistic in the sense that it, it was divined by supernatural forces, allowing the foretelling of illnesses through the examination of the entrails, particularly the livers of sacrificial animals. This was a common phenomenon, the so-called art of heruspicy, which is examining the entrails of sheep and poultry in particular to predict the future of the outcome of battles, very much something that was favoured in ancient Babylon. The most rudimentary understanding of the interior of bodies would have come also from other sources, including the observant slaughter of animals presided over by rabbis at a time when the Greek physicians, including Hippocrates, were attributing sicknesses to humoral imbalances rather than to any discrete pathology of the solid organs. And one can see that really that with a non-organic view such as this of disease, it would have been felt that there was fairly little value in autopsy. There wouldn't be much value in knowing the anatomy of the human body if it had no relevance to the nature of disease. Now that aside, even though in many practical cases the process of autopsy preceded its value, it partly became a method for excluding sinister causes of disease, particularly poisoning, which was common in that time, as well as a practical way of reassuring those who requested the autopsy that there wasn't anything hereditary which likely ran nefariously through one's family, so that it was used for that particular reason as well. The other medieval indication for an autopsy frequently under ecclesiastical aegis was for those that were performed in monasteries and abbeys designed to divine if the deceased showed any signs of sainthood. And there's a, an excellent article on this subject by Catherine Park called The Criminal and the Saintly Body, Autopsy and Dissection in Renaissance Italy. It's in Renaissance Quarterly, quite an old article now, 1994, but it talks about a number of examples, the so-called Chiara of Montefalco from the 13th century when autopsy started, that they the nuns did routinely autopsies on their own um, sisterhood and um, they showed in this particular example uh, what was thought to be a crucifix embedded in her heart. Um, she was also said to have the image of Christ on her heart. Uh, she uh, had three gallstones uh, which we mightn't think of as particularly abnormal now, but these were considered as part of the Holy Trinity. So these were considered as signs of sainthood, and she was ultimately canonised. So there is this kind of um, approach that was used. 
but where and how did the concept of dissection itself commence, which is a little different? Although much is made of the descriptions of many of the bodily organs in Egyptian papyrus scrolls dating from around 1550 BCE, both in the Edward and Smith papyrus and the Ebers papyrus, little is actually known concerning the history and practice of formal cadaveric dissection and its teaching from this period. The complex record of Egyptian mummification, one might think, would presuppose some knowledge of anatomy and at least how to extract organs through minimal apertures whilst preserving something of the external architecture, wrapping the chest, filling the abdomen with camphorated wine, eviscerating the chest and abdomen. It would require some anatomical knowledge. The practitioners of those arts cannot, I think, in all fairness, be equated with the anatomists of later years. The motives of their practitioners, often of rather low-level uh, social station, were more connected to the embalmers, I think, of today, and their training would not of itself signify any concerted interest with equivalency to that of the average anatomist, namely in the annotation of the anatomical structures and of their variations. And that's not a criticism obviously, of embalmers or mortuary attendants. It's just a difference between anatomical annotation and embalming. But hence we, I don't think, can regard this period as one where any sort of true anatomical tradition was established. We can debate that, but I think that's the case. In similar fashion, the Greeks did not, beyond description, create some formal anatomical discipline. Aristotle had certainly described the structure of the spinal vertebral bodies in animals, and Praxagoras of Kos had distinguished arteries from veins, where it was reported that the Ptolemaic pharaohs had actually furnished him, furnished him permission in Alexandria to vivisect restrained criminals. I think some people also would suggest that the separation of arteries and veins can be attributed to Alcmaeon of Croton, but uh, there are some early descriptions of these things. Dissection is historically attributed first to Herophilus of Chalcedon and then a generation on to Erasistratus of Chios, although neither has left any uh, uh, attributable written legacy. And it's likely, in fact, that the entire works of Herophilus were consumed in a fire in the Great Library of Alexandria in 391 AD. That library was believed to have housed around three-quarters of a million separate scrolls. Um, it is thought, although none of the uh, folia exist, that Herophilus had differentiated peripheral sensory nerves from motor nerves, and the cerebrum was separated from the cerebellum, as well as having described many of the specialised cranial nerves as they emanated from the base of the brain, the medulla oblongata. Herophilus, I think quite rightly perhaps, could be considered as the father of anatomy and is also the one of the first, perhaps legislatively, who was restricted in performing dissection. It was a practice which remained then dormant for about a millennium and a half. But uh, we don't fully know the details of this. The central figure in the anatomy of antiquity is, as we've already seen, Galen, alias Claudius Galen, but for as much as is known about him, there's an equal helping of myth. He'd been brought to Rome to serve as the personal physician to the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. 
and although Galen was the principal authority on human anatomy for more than a dozen centuries, he did not actually dissect any humans at all, preferring to vivisect animals and to infer human anatomy from this practice. His favourite was the Barbary ape, Macacus sylvianus, but he dissected a lot of frogs and lizards and uh, those sorts of things. Um, the only other option for examination of the body at that time, since it was prohibited in Rome, might have been some sort of cursory attempt at a post-mortem inspection, and that would have been the sort of testament of forensic interest, again, in the cause of someone's death for legal reasons that was taken, for example, by the Greek physician Antistius when he was invited to scrutinise, but, of course, not to dissect, not to perform an autopsy, on the body of Julius Caesar, immediately following the emperor's assassination. And his observations alone implicated one of the 23 visible stab wounds as causing the fatality, in that particular case, maybe the first post-mortem report. Right up until the Renaissance, for over a thousand years, particularly with the Greek translation of Galen's work, Galenism, as perhaps we should call it, then basically held sway as the dogma of anatomy. And some who discounted its inherent value were simply called heretics, and it was tacitly accepted that there was no place for those who sailed against the Galenic wind in the developing universities. Universities were places not for research. They were rather storehouses of knowledge. And the practical Galenists, if we're to call them that, created the strategic processes of dissection of the corpse itself, and they set the stage for, perhaps we might call it, its intrinsic theatricality. Dissection was a decidedly unpleasant enterprise, with enthusiasts working in the colder daylight hours, uh, where there was a retardation of decay, they needed aromatic plants around them to deaden the stench of rotting flesh. It was a pretty grim apprenticeship. Part of the allure of dissection was, however, as it remains today, its tactile nature, and that advantage, to some extent, in my opinion, has been lost by the replacement of the cadaver with models and computerised graphics. But now even this effect can be, of course, partially simulated by specially designed computer-driven trainers where complex algorithms reproduce the feel of the tissues in what is called the haptic feedback. And perhaps these robotic instruments might justify the hours a surgical apprentice could have otherwise spent, perhaps outside their hospital, with the likes of a Nintendo video game. These simulators have been designed as stand-ins for the real thing. In dissection, students are encouraged to probe cavities and uh, foraminal spaces with their fingers, to feel their margins, their tightness or laxity, and that allows them, I think, really to appreciate how nerve or vascular compression syndromes might develop through narrow natural channels. And from these dissections, they're asked to draw together a three-dimensional concept of where things go and how they might be restricted in their transit. The feel of the thickened arteries and the laxer, more capacitive veins 
was pretty important too, as was the fibrous toughness of the nearby nerves. It was important to feel these things in dissection, certainly when we were medical students. And the very idea was to instill in the memory the texture of dissectable parts, if you like, even their personality, should it ever come to pass that one were in the throes of some emergent procedure out in the stick somewhere where that sort of thing might be important. It now no longer apparently is. In the Renaissance, however, to hold the dogmatic Galenic view of anatomy still created a lot of personal dilemmas, and most of it was centred around the differences between what was taught and what as a dissector one could see, the idea of dissection discord. And for the Galenic apologists, that which they observed but didn't somehow equate with what the great man had written must simply have been aberrations, and therefore not worthy of discussion. Perhaps some had argued they were misunderstandings and a consequence of the repeated translations and retranslations of Galen's canonical texts. Maybe others had thought that they were that there was something intrinsically different in the way the interior and the visceral organic organic structure of people in the Renaissance was composed compared to how people looked internally in antiquity to explain why they didn't fit into the model of a Renaissance body. Now, that's not an easy thing to accept either because many of the dissectors were deeply religious men who plied their trade of dissection with almost an equivalently religious zeal and it would perhaps have been pretty blasphemous to think along these lines that somehow God's immutable creation would have needed modification over the time from its most perfect start. Vesalius's teacher, uh, Jacques Dubois, who preferred to be known as Jacobus Silvius, had written that if dissection contradicted Galen, then these were just abnormalities. And he thought that this was proof also of the degeneration of the human body since Greco-Roman times. He was thought that the antiquity, which was uh, the, the human in antiquity, was more of a homo perfectus and that there had been a degeneration up to the level of the uh, Renaissance. And uh, the idea, of course, of the Renaissance was to take the perfection, whether it be an art, painting, sculpture, uh, architecture, poetry, music, and indeed even anatomy, and to use the ideal of antiquity and to translate it into the modern, that is, the Renaissance times. So that was the idea of Renaissance was really a revivification, rather, uh, in the sense than a new birth, it was a rebirth. And so these were the, the sort of basic arguments that came about. Now, um, the anatomy of exotic animals, also brought back by intrepid explorers, would not have equated with these Aristotelian taxonomies. There was a lot that the section brought which did not make much sense, but there were few who dared stand against those doctrines of old. For them, even the slightest shift from what was viewed as the symmetry or precision drawn from antiquity to the present was to metaphorically travel to Gibraltar's Pillars of Hercules, which was considered the limits of the known world, and then to go on and ignore the sailor's ancient warning, Naples Ultra, to go no further. These people were considered, uh, who were against Galenism, as mavericks. 
and to go against Galen was to impugn all that was sacred and holy, drawn from the wellspring of antiquity, and all that was part of the tradition handed down almost divinely through Apollo and Aesculapius. Uh, this was the sort of level of dissecting halls. They were not just finding out what anatomy existed, but they were places of fundamental philosophy and largely uh, um, theosophy or theolo theologic philosophy. You know, what was next if people were going to get rid of Galen, uh, then uh, Ptolemy's astronomy would be considered a mistake or Pliny's codicils of the plants and animals of the earth was considered fanciful or Aristotle's very cosmos of the co uh, concept of the cosmos might have been considered deluded. These were central planks in people's understanding and to even contemplate such a shift in Galen's almost cosmic structure of the body would require hours of dissection in the knowledge that the new laws of such observation and annotation must of necessity have been a paradigmatic shift in the way anything had ever been viewed before. And this applied equally to conceptualising physics into mathematical rules. It's rather important to appreciate how anatomy was taught and learned in these, this sort of Galenic atmosphere, and I'll touch on some of these colossi of anatomical discourse and discovery later on in a further podcasts. But through the Dark Ages and afterwards, those standing, for example, on the Galenic side of the corps included John Caius of Cambridge, the Spaniard Andres de Laguna, the Germans John Driander and Gunther of Andernach, who was uh, Vesalius's uh, boss, the Frenchman Charles Estienne, Jean-Baptiste Carano of Ferrara. On the other, other side was the powerful figure of Vesalius himself. And in this debate... Uh, if, uh, if thus behoved followers and disciples and anyone actually working in a dissecting hall to basically pick a side. And, um, but through concerted dissections, many of which Vesalius performed in public, he had redefined anatomy through his own and his students' eyes. With Vesalius, things were as they appeared, not the mantra of some hallowed text and his were shows for others to confirm, embellish or refute. And after Vesalius, anatomy would never be quite the same. It's appropriate, therefore, and we'll talk about that uh, later on in another podcast, to use him as a marker for those who came before, the pre-Vesalians, and those who came after the post-Vesalians. In a way, Galen does not appear in history. All that Vesalius had exposed would stand the test of time in its proof by the confirmation of others, or it would only be held to be true until it was swept away by observable contrary data. And that, after all, is the earliest representation of a future scientific method. And in acceptance of this new Vesalian dogma, he effectively predated the tenets of the new sciences by nearly a century. This was a century or so before William Harvey demonstrated the idea uh, of science through experimentation, the idea of positing a hypothesis which could then be confirmed or refuted. So Vesalius, in effect, presaged the birth of science, but he really described by dissecting himself uh, a new kind of scientific method. The science of anatomy had, in separating 
from the perspicacity of the humanities, imposed upon itself, however, the very harshest standards. For cosmology, as an example, adoption of this road would doom parts of Aristotelianism as much as the new anatomy now threatened large swathes of Galenism. And for this new approach, then, new navigators were going to be required, as much pioneers as those traversing the oceans in search of new worlds, if we may think of them that way, with each creating a representative map of the body's real terrain. And that's why the uh, various maps of the body, of course, are called effectively atlases. Within this canon of the new in anatomical dissection, we perhaps forget the contribution, I think, also of the Arabic world. And it's like those who teach philosophy only hold the central importance of the Scottish Enlightenment and who forgetfully glide by Confucianism or any other Eastern philosophical thought. We do the same thing, I think, in anatomy. The Arabic tradition of anatomy and surgery coming from Alexandria and from the Muslim Empire, stretching to the Iberian Peninsula and as far as India, has had only really scant recognition, but did begin in the works of Avicenna, Ali ibn al-Abbas al-Majusi, who was known as Hali Abbas, who produced the medical work, the uh, Kitab al-Malekior, Ibn Zur or Abn Zor or, uh, of uh, Andalus al-Andalus, Ibn Dumai, the personal physician of the Sultan Saladin, al-Bukhasis, who wrote the formative Arabic treatise on surgery, the Al-Tasrif, their truncated work made its way to Europe, where it formed part of the study canon for the principal medieval French, Italian and Spanish dissectors, whose renown was nominally linked to their birthplace. So these were early kind of medieval people that had picked up the Arabic works from the period of uh, Great Enlightenment, the Arabic period of Enlightenment, which was really from the 8th or 9th century to about the 13th century. So these people predated the Renaissance, but brought the Arabic works, had them translated. And these were people who were known, as I've said, by their town of origin, but people such as, uh, for example, Guido Lanfranchi, Lanfranc of Milan, 1250 to 1306, uh, Henri de Montville, Guy de Choliac, Mondino de Luzzi, about whom we'll speak later, Guillaume of Salichet from 1210 to 1277, Hugues of Luc or Luca, Bruno of Padua, Theodoric of Catalonia. These were how these surgeons and anatomists were named. From the inception in the 13th and 14th centuries in a range of European centres and coinciding with the rise of the universities and their segregation into separate specialist departments, the city anatomies for almost 200 years became public spectacles which contributed to rather than detracted from the reputations of some of the larger developing institutions. Your city developed fame based on how well you could perform a public anatomisation. And there was, as a consequence, a kind of ritualistic expectation about the dissection of bodies, embedding them into the annual city schedules and which figured into the foundation templates for the construction of bricks and mortar sites, theatre anatomia, which were designed, dedicated, in fact, to dissection of corpses. Now, in Italy, for example, these... Um, public anatomizations were linked annually to the annual Carnivale. And in England, 
where uh, the anatomised criminals who had been sentenced for uh, capital uh, crimes and then executed, uh, they were then subject to anatomisation and their schedule of anatomisation was linked to the court assizes or hearings. So it became a very formal process. The bricks and mortar buildings that were designed to examine cadavers sprung up all over Europe and they were devoted to the dissection of corpses, first appearing in Bologna and Padua and from there in other Italian and European cities. Purpose-built Teatro Anatomia were constructed, for example, in Padua, uh, designed by Hieronymus Fabricius, for example, in 1594. Uh, there was one in Pisa in 1569, one in Ferrara in 1588, one in Montpellier in France in 1588, a London one in 1557, and then redone by the architect Inigo Jones in 1636, and one in 1589 in Basel, just to give examples um, of these. In an age where there was a greater interaction and far less separation than today between the disciplines of a form of pre-science, in the way we've described it, and the traditional humanities, it was not uncommon to find young anatomists simultaneously combining their studies of anatomy with formal tuition in philosophy or divinity. And equally, for those young aristocrats undergoing their grand European tours, there was often a pressing need to factor into their travels a trip to a named anatomy school so that after visiting the essential galleries and museums of Europe, they could top it all off by witnessing the dissection of a corpse that was normally part of your itinerary. There are many reasons why the Renaissance and the immediate post-Renaissance period afforded a greater opportunity to see or even perform dissection. After the Puritanism of the Dark Ages, part of this shift towards a social acceptance of anatomical dissection reflected the marked conceptual and pragmatic differences in the funerary practices and death cultures between southern Italy and the rest of northern Europe. Now, the idea of death throughout most of Italy was that it represented an immediate separation of the soul from the physical remains, and that effectively the body possessed no particular uh, significance or special powers. And in that sense, uh, really, uh, although reverence to it as an entity may have been paid, the presence of the body was nothing more than a memento mori, and as such it was considered carte blanche to dissect and to examine it. In this regard, the conceptual body as merely an object of personhood and memory was critical then in permitting dissection. The Harvard science historian Catherine Park argues that this approach dispelled the importance of where the person had died without any specific requirement for getting the body back to any particular location which had been designated by the person in life. Although many did do that, certainly many royalty did do that, it wasn't particularly that relevant. And rather the burial should be simple and in locus on ground felt sufficiently consecrated. By contrast, the northern areas beyond the sort of southern Italian approach to death conceptually regarded the corpse as a kind of gradually fading person, where over time the physical remains through their inexorable decomposition and decay steadily lost connection with the living entity. For them, the body, although dead, had in its appearance some kind of sense of vivacity and was capable of returning home in some guise or other or of having the potential to influence the affairs of men. 
More than this, the legend arose of the deteriorating corpse which appeared with regularity in the iconic imagery or which was carved onto the front of the person's tomb. These corpses materialised in allegorical tales as the so-called Tramsey and were paradoxically vital and almost living duplicates of the dead. And there were two of these Tramsey even before interment presumptive special powers of a corpse. Some of these notions were the superstitions of the age, where the historian, the Oxford historian Ruth Richardson, writes of a custom in England that a signature or a mark taken from the body while still warm was as valid as one made in life, or that to touch or even kiss a corpse might confer to the toucher the transfer of its corporeal strength. And even an evidentiary belief that if a murderer touches his victim, the corpse will bleed. In the 16th and 17th century, the legal norm, the Jus Ferretri, decreed that if the dead body reacted in any way to the presence of the presumed assassin, that there, that, that was sufficient proof, really, of murderous guilt. So there are a number of these kind of folk tales and uh, books on folklore and so forth. Um, each of these funerary traditions and the impressions of death, be they old wives' tales or folkloric stories, had their influence upon the public acceptability, obviously, of autopsy examination of the dead or of the piety of taking bodies afterwards and then dissecting them only for the purpose of learning about their inner structure. For those largely in medieval Italy who held no truck with the importance of the physical remains, there was little concern about opening bodies after death. But further north, such activities were considered anathema. Another impact on dissection was from theological sources where its acceptance would rely upon the specific intervention of popes who issued decretals or bulls governing both the forensic use of autopsy in the resolution of deaths from foul play and permitting the handling of body parts and relics. So there are a couple of prominent ones of these that we have to mention which are of some interest Prominent and highly influential theologians like St. Augustine had concluded in his treatise, the De Civitate Dei, that although the bodies of the dead should be respected, that it was perfectly clear that Christians need not concern themselves with the idea of splitting up their body parts for burial. Effectively for St. Augustine, who in the 4th century AD was establishing the theology of the young Catholic Church, come the reckoning, all flesh wherever it lay and in whatever condition, would be reintegrated, very similar to Judaic law. The body in life was just a simple but a recognisable vessel for the soul. The physical structure, he had written, was no different than a particularly fine set of clothes that anyone with the right upbringing might design uh, to take care of and to look after. And uh, just as Jesus' remains had been protected and marked, Anyone else, wholly or otherwise, should be so treated. That was the theory. Augustine was actually against transporting bones or their exhumation, which was a major concern, uh, became a major concern during the Crusades. And he did recognise the hypocrisy of a position that could accept the vague biblical story of Joseph disinterring his father's embalmed remains and taking them for burial to Hebron. So uh, there, is this, there was this kind of debate about the movement um, of uh, crusade martyrs. 
By the Middle Ages and beyond, the papacy took a definitive interest in the disputations after death and in the responsibilities for the dead. Right from the beginning, autopsy had been sanctioned by papal intervention in specific cases where the Pope himself felt compelled to pass his legal rather than his moral judgment. And, in fact, it's no accident that the earliest autopsies in Bologna were supported by their very dominant faculties of law. Bologna started in the 13th century as a faculty of law, and then it spread out in the development of its so-called fralia, its faculties, to um, uh, take on medicine and anatomy. At the start of the 12th century, the other interesting point is that the practical direction of autopsy was adjudicated through case law by the very powerful new pope, uh, a man called Lottario de Conti de Segni, 1160-1216, who became Pope Innocent III uh, and who reigned between 1198-1216, to who prior to his election had actually been uh, a noted jurisprudence and canon law scholar at Bologna University. So it's kind of no accident that these things became very legal enterprises. Two particular judgments that Innocent III made uh, in the protection of priests implicated in deaths were actually quite critical in promoting the idea that an autopsy could act as the legal remedy for certain circumstances. In one story, members of the monastery Sacratal Trivitatis of the Holy Trinity of Malaleone near Bordeaux in France had appealed to the Pope for judgment after their abbot, having surprised a burglar, had hit him over the head with a large farm implement. Fleeing the scene, the thief was then cornered by the townsfolk who killed him with swords and clubs. And despite this, it was argued by some that the abbot had actually struck the initial and therefore potentially fatal blow, with Innocent directly ordering a post-mortem examination as a result. Now, although devoid of forensic detail, we just don't have that information, the procedure exonerated the abbot of any wrongdoing, and it was the first such example where the church had sanctioned the outcome of the case which specifically relied on the forensic legal bearing of the findings at autopsy. Pope Innocent became famous for his Solomon-like decision-making, and in another such case, concerning the Bishop of Siguenza near Toledo in Spain, when a set of canons inside the church had been trained on an unruly crowd of congregants, by canons canons and deacons, I mean cannon guns, the bishop struck one young man on the head with his cane, and after seemingly a trivial injury, the man left the church and attended the public baths that day, performing afterwards some field labour and then eating and drinking at several local taverns. Feeling unwell, about a month later, he was attended by a physician who performed a trephination of his head. He opened up the skull with the release of any blood clot, but the young man died four days later. Pope Innocent again used the autopsy to exonerate the priest, claiming no temporal association between the procedure and the original incident, and actually ruling against the physician, who he actually thought was quite unskilled. What this sounds like, actually, is a, is a chronic subdural hematoma, so that he's got the injury, which then becomes a problem a month later. So attacking the second physician for doing a trepanation may be 
a little unfair, but we don't have the details of that. Nevertheless, the Pope was actively involved in the idea of autopsy as a kind of uh, closure in relation to individual uh, cases uh, of dispute, particularly those regarding the church and the ability of abbots to go around heading people on the head. Whilst the Pope was using post-mortem examinations to rule over serious disputes involving the clergy, there were still inherent differences in regional culture concerning the handling of the dead that took little account of these papal decretals. Europe's northern populations had a preoccupation with embalming of their corpses in an effort to stay the process of decay so that there could be no alignment of the final burial place, or there could be rather an, an, an alignment of the final burial place with the wishes in life of the deceased. And at that time, where the preservation of the body was at its most primitive, the accepted practice, particularly for the nobility, was to remove the entrails and to dismember and divide up the corpse, stashing each part usually in wine and spices for travel and frequently depositing the most favoured organs, like the heart, in one burial site and the remainder of the body in another. Both sites, provided they were considered to be on hallowed Christian ground, could function as expanded places of pilgrimage and prayer. With the rise of the popularity of the sectioning of the dead, a further argument in favour was that those who desired in life to visit the Holy Land could at least do so in spirit. For many, however, the best laid plans didn't actually eventuate. For Charles the Bald, 823-877 AD, who died crossing the Alps after his entrails had been removed for practical purposes, the whole body was treated with wine and pickling spices with the intention of burying it where Charles had in life decreed his preferred spot, the Church of Saint-Denis. As it turned out, unfortunately, during the pilgrimage, the remains were in such an advanced state of decay, their burial was forced in Nantua. These practical decisions were not actually trivial. Henry Huntington's account of the transport in 1135 to Reading of the body of King Henry I, 1068 to 1135, after he died in Rouen, makes for particularly grisly reading. The king was decapitated with removal of his brain and eyes for burial in the Rouen, and the remainder of the body dismembered and packed in salt and ox hides. The trip proved impossible with the death of the man who had extracted the king's brain, and the stench particularly horrid, the corpse leaking a repellent fluid that forced the travelling party to dispose of the whole thing in Cayenne. Um, it's an interesting book written by Henry Huntington, the chronicled Henry Huntington, translated by Thomas Forrester in 1853. It, it describes their trip. But the fashion of body separation, which seems abhorrent today, actually rapidly spread through Europe. It was the practice particularly for English and French royalty to dismantle, to dismantle the body. So this was done, for example, uh, in, uh, with King John or Henry III and also Richard the Lionheart for separate burial. In the case of Richard, uh, 1157 to 1199, he was particularly specific, decreeing that on his death his heart should be removed and buried in Rouen next to his grandfather, his brain, entrails and even some of his blood at Charroux and the remainder of his body alongside his mother at Fontevraud. 
and division and transport of a preserved corpse of a nobleman, king, or someone considered in their lifetime to have been a saint, became so common in Germany, the process was referred to as the Mos Teutonicus, the German method, and as a measure of the power of the corpse or even of its relics, individual legends grew. Although it never happened, after Edward I uh, died, 1239 to 1307, it was proposed that his heart be carried at the head of every English army until their mortal enemy Scotland was vanquished, and that after victory, 140 knights should then bear it for burial to the Holy Land. But in 1299, Pope Boniface VIII, 1230 to 1303, issued a new papal bull, the Detestande Feritatis, expressing his personal horror at the widespread practice of dismemberment. He was particularly upset at the idea that the bodies of crusaders might be separated and boiled down to provide clean bones which could then be shipped back for burial. Despite most others accepting the practice, Boniface reissued the bull in February of 1300 and then reinforced it in April of 1303, drawing it formally into a canonical law as the so-called extravagante communis. Now, even though its flagrant disregard would surely result in immediate excommunication, most effectively ignored it, although Mondino de Liuzzi, the Bolognese anatomist known as Mondinus, who had demonstrated to his students the best way of examining the collection of bones at the base of the skull was by boiling the head, he told them that because of the bull, this part of the instruction could no longer take place. The attitude of the church had for a short time an influence on anatomists, as Boniface remained adamant in his view that, quote, the minds of the faithful would no longer be horrified and the human body no longer torn to pieces, unquote. The letter of the law was both strict and specific, where direct papal approval was actually needed for the exhumation of bodies, only after they'd been reduced to ashes, his bull including the so-called incineratus corporibus. Now, this would take a long time, obviously, for a body to be reduced to ashes. So effectively, the idea then of post-mortems and dissection were disrupted during Boniface's rule. Put simply, bones could be transported, but only if they'd become naturally devoid of their flesh, which seems a little impractical. Families or their retainers could not boil them down for the purpose. The law was a specific expression of the derision Boniface had for all the current processes of handling the dead, most notably on the battlefield, and he had in mind a particular abhorrence to the widespread practices that were going on uh, of crusaders of disembowelment, dismemberment, boiling, exhumation and bone transfer. Not only were these purveyors practising such activities outside of the bull to be excommunicated, but the body, if treated in such a manner, regardless of whether it be that of a saint or a sinner, should never, Boniface said, be offered a Christian burial. The rash of papal bulls from a belligerent pope at war with King Philip IV, 1268-1314, of France, had considerable collateral damage for the anatomists, although many of them ignored the new rulings coming out as they did from the Vatican almost every year. But there were some early dissectors, like Nicholas and Richard of Salerno, who as strict Galenists were instrumental in using Catholic pronouncements 
to delay the spread of dissection as a teaching exercise throughout Europe. They would take the wording of the bull to heart and considered body separation and hence any dissection as quote-unquote inhumanum et maxima apud catholicus, inhuman, especially to Catholics. Now, even though the bull was seemingly at odds with the prevailing sense of emerging Christian humanism, it did have the political value of taking the brisk trade of relics and the substantial income they generated out of the hands of the local friars. The pronouncements of Boniface and Augustine, however, did not largely figure in the minds of the average man, and it was seen more as an attempt by Boniface to actually control the rising Franciscan and Dominican orders. And in so doing, it became a boundary that the Pope had somewhat carelessly overstepped. In 1304, the Boniface bull was cancelled by the new Pope Benedict XI, 1240-1304, who, as a specific conciliatory political gesture, exempted the handling of the bodies of any of the relatives of King Philip the Fair, as he was also called because of his good looks, right down to the fourth family degree. Successive popes, Clement V in 1306 and John the Twenty Third, 1316, felt also strongly enough to formally issue exemptions to these bulls, restoring permission for the embalming treatment and movement of dead bodies that would go hand in hand with their availability for use in the dissecting halls. And for practical purposes, the Boniface bull died when in 1351 Clement VI, 1291-1352, granted the entire French royal house in perpetuity the honour of treating its dead in any way it saw fit. So there were a lot of exceptions made and overturning by these new uh, medieval popes. The winds of change gave the Catholic Church the opportunity to appreciate the utilitarian value in dissection of the corpse and in so doing, the church had come full circle, first in its tacit approval of dissection, and then for a short while in its condemnation. By 1737, if we were to jump ahead, it was back, that is the church, to an open endorsement of the practice. And it was in this spirit that Bologna's Archbishop, Prosper Lambertini, 1675 to 1758, openly supported the idea of the Bolognese anatomy studium, conducting public dissections. In a notificazione, he astonishingly declared that the Church had always acted on the matter, quote-unquote, through its recorded history and not with doctrine. But later, Prospero Lambertini, the Archbishop, became Pope Benedict XIV, and in this Lambertini was as good as his word, even reiterating an equal patronage by the Church for both the arts and the sciences. For Lambertini, Mother Church was not going to find herself on the wrong side of the progress of history, and he provided during his papacy the most, I would say, robust approval of anything amongst the developing sciences, including anatomical dissection, that was likely to improve mankind. He was extremely pro-anatomical dissection. And when in 1730 Bologna's archdeacon, Anton Felice Marsilli, died... um, Lambertini ascended to the position of Archbishop before he became Pope, promising, which he delivered, a new Academy of Science at the Palazzo Poggi in Bologna, where there had formerly been the Clementina Academy of the Arts. So 
there was this fusion of a new centre of science with arts and uh, with collections. And for the rest of his life, Lambertini would attempt to build bridges between the two disciplines, uh, really between theology and science. But in the matter of dissection and the display of cadavers, he would always champion the anatomists and always come down firmly on the side um, of science. Dissections had gone on before uh, really any ecclesiastical sanction, and they generally occurred, however, in isolation without punishment. Uh, and if one looks in this regard, really no one appeared in the Catholic books of penance who'd been questioned about the performance of a dissection. And there's no actual record of any trial from the roles of the Inquisition or some inherently illegal dissection-related practices in amongst the myriad of reports of the ecclesiastical courts. So even though it wasn't strongly supported, it also wasn't um, uh, strongly sanctioned or punished. If autopsy commenced somewhere and sometime, there's general agreement about its earliest report in 1286 in Salambine's Chronicle. What's interesting about this initial case um, is that it represents the element that the conduct of autopsy should generate, namely curiosity. The Franciscan monk Fra Salambine, 1221-1290, enduring a particularly hard winter, noted in his diary that a doctor opening up the chest of a man found the same vesicular apostemes, as they were called, surrounding the heart that Salambine himself had seen in a pestilence which was killing his own chickens. Now, if you look at that, that must have been some form of foul parasite. At the time, there were large numbers of chicken deaths reported in Italy, particularly in Cremona, Piacenza, Parma and Reggio. And there's a number of references uh, for that. Um, it is possible that there was an earlier recorded autopsy case, that of Sigurd Jorselfar from 1090 to 1130, which was cited by Frederick Grön. And uh, in this story, Sigurd, the Norwegian king, was returning from Jerusalem, and whilst in Byzantium many of his party died, Believing it due to the wine, he ordered a pig's liver to be immersed in a vat of wine and noted that it changed colour in the same way that the liver of one of the anatomised deceased had appeared. Um, there's a story about that uh, by uh, E.B. Krumhar, The History of Autopsy, its relation to the development of modern medicine, uh, which was published in 1938. But to get back to Fra Salambine's particular case, he noted these apostemes uh, in this autopsy that was similar to what he'd seen in his own chickens, and it clearly meant that autopsy had been known before that time and probably was an accepted practice, but that it simply had not been previously recorded. The next autopsy, performed in Bologna in 1302 by their professor of medicine, Bartolomeo de Varignana, uh, was performed on the patrician Azzolino Deleonesti, and it was conducted under a judicial order in an effort to discern if Agnesti's death had been caused by poisoning. Varignana concluded that it was a death from natural causes, where the findings perhaps viewed today would probably be more consistent with heart failure. 
Poisons, of course, were a common cause for examination of the body, even though the poisons that were used at that time, uh, things like deadly nightshade, <coughs> belladonna, hemlock, wolfbane, actually left very little physical forensic evidence of note. The fear of epidemics in particular had also emboldened some to conduct autopsy examinations in a brave effort to find the source of syphilis. And there's extensive stories there, particularly from Girolamo Fracastora, uh, 1478 to 1553, writing his rather heroic poem concerning what many had labelled the French disease, the Morbus Gallicus, which describes the more egregious aspects of this affliction and which were confirmed also by the German satirist Ulrich von Hutten, uh, 1488 to 1523, in 1519. Syphilis actually came to symbolise everything, just to get off topic here, that was detested about other nation-states. I have another podcast on the history of syphilis. Uh, it's not part of this podcast series, but it will be released on another channel. But uh, to get just to syphilis, it came to symbolise everything that was detested by other nation-states. Never has such, I would say, a global ailment found such nominal asylum in the generate bosom of so many nations. The French referred to it as the Neapolitan or the Spanish illness, the Neapolitans and the Spaniards as the French evil. The Poles called it the Russian illness, the Russians the Polish disease, the Turks referred to it as the Turkish pestilence, but also the Tahitian, the British disease, the Indians, the Portuguese complaint, and the Japanese, referred to it as the Chinese pox, the Cantonese ulcer, the Tang sore. That's just getting off topic. So let's come back to the idea of syphilis. Of course, many were using syphilis as an opportunity to perform autopsy. Fracastoro was actually the first to entertain the idea that there might be an as yet unidentified and unseen contagious particle moving about in the polluted air or with a simple touch that could have been the cause of the most horrid of epidemics. And it was literally, one can think of that, the germ of an idea. However, that would have to wait some 300 more years for clarification. Uh, but he proposed the idea of epidemics by contagion in his 1546 book De Contagionibus et Contagiosus Morbus, the treatise on contagion. Um, the organism, by the way, responsible for syphilis, the Treponema pallidum, wasn't identified until 1905 in material sent from a prostitute's vulval ulcer to the dermatologist Paul Erich Hoffman and the zoologist Fritz uh, Richard Shorden. Um at any rate, in the meantime, it would have taken a courageous few to examine the bodies that had piled up also after outbreaks of plague in Perugia in 1348, in Padua in 1363 and in Venice in 1534. So there were a few brave people who were performing autopsies for these widely infectious diseases during epidemics. With a growing interest in autopsy, there was a greater sanction, obviously, as we've said, for dissections performed on criminals as the principal source of bodies for surgical examination, although that didn't provide as much fodder for the anatomists as might be imagined. If you're looking at records there, uh, they were kept, for example, from the Confraternity of Santa Maria della Croce al Tempio in Florence between 1420 and 1469, as an example, of the 331 people executed, only 20% were 
were non-residents. You had to be a non-resident of Florence in order to be able to be anatomised and hence eligible for anatomisation. Most of the cities had embedded statutes concerning dissection of convicted criminals who lived locally, where the universities designated that only a foreigner could be anatomised, and that was specifically stipulated in Genoa, Perugia, Pisa, Florence and Padua, stating that the sources of such bodies for dissection should not potentially be recognisable and had to reside a certain minimum distance from the main city. Uh, the issue is a little bit more complicated than that because in some places over time the availability of corpses was problematic, whereas in others there was a surfeit. In England, for example, bodies for the anatomists could only largely be obtained via the courts and frequently demand outstripped supply. The demand-supply equation had more to do with the imposition of execution as a sentence and the interpretation of the laws uh, than anything else. For example, in England, between 1688 and 1820, the capital statutes, that's crimes for which the death penalty could be imposed, grew markedly from about 50 to over 200. And the harshness of the law, at least in its letter, had dubbed the period the bloody code. But uh, I would say that that was in name only, where although there was no judicial reluctance to sentence criminals severely, there was often a problem in the implementation of the law. Uh, between, <clears throat> for example, 1770 and 1830, about 35,000 people were condemned to death, but only one-fifth were actually executed. The humiliating order for someone to be anatomised on top of that by the surgeons after they'd usually been hanged was as much at the discretion of the judge as was their right to issue pardons given that during this period there were no defence councils, so it was just a judicial order. And there was discretion, too, over whether to substitute the sentence of execution with a fixed period of transportation, either to the colonies or to the American plantations. So there were a number of options and mechanisms by which um, execution, death, and therefore ultimately anatomization could be mitigated. Sometimes, however, the pendulum swung the other way and judges, if the mood struck them, could be more than accommodating the surgeons. Uh, in one case, for example, in 1681, a Tuscan criminal, Antonio Bagnoli di Bagni di Luca, who was committed to life in prison, had his sentence overruled by the Cardinal Legate, and he was subsequently condemned to death, which was just there to satisfy the immediate needs of the anatomists. Um, <coughs> his anatomization was performed on the 16th of January, uh, in 1681. Um, to further sate the surgical appetite, the Bolognese elders, for example, in 1660, permitted access to indigent bodies in a provisional statute that made a point to specifically include, quote, the meanest amongst those dying in the hospitals, unquote. Um, and along with a pick from some of the public burial sites. The dissectors soon enough became spoiled for choice and they offered their wish list of death and its manner, preferring, if not demanding, that the corpses should be as quickly hanged as possible over other means of execution and favouring bodies which were of middle age and neither too fat nor too thin to dissect. <coughs> Amsterdam's anatomist, Louis de Bilz, 1624-1669, specified that he wanted his criminals to be fed a hearty meal before they were executed 
so that he could study the pathways of their digestive tracts. Now, these regulations permitted anatomization to become somewhat accepted as a consequence of being a peasant. Despite his personal enlightenment, uh, Prosper Lombardini, as we said later, Pope Benedict XIV, considered basic criminals the property of the lord or the monarch. And most aristocrats and subjects alike, including the clerics, regarded the monarch's power as divinely affirmed with an infallible right to do with his subjects in life and in death precisely as he pleased. Uh, Lambertini had expressed the opinion, for example, that the prince possesses dominion over the bodies of the condemned, and he'd written so uh, in a particular notificazione uh, from Bologna in 1737. The Florentine physician botanist Antonio Cocchi, 1685 to 1747, wrote matter-of-factly in his 1745 Della Anatomia uh, discourse that the, quote, the dissection of anyone not esteemed a member of civil society was an action of indifference, unquote. So this was the sort of mood around, particularly amongst aristocrats who were not at great risk of being anatomised, about the basic peasant who could well be anatomised. It might have seemed natural then that the monarch could in most countries decree to the anatomists their minimum quota of dissectable bodies. And such edicts eventually led to legislation which founded in the various countries the incorporation of the guilds and companies of surgeons. So this was the natural progression of a rather unwholesome set of laws. In 1340, the Duke of Anjou had made provisions in Montpellier before it was part of France, and still whilst it was part of the kingdom of Aragon and Majorca, for a single cadaver to be available once a year for dissection, even when such activity was still prohibited in Paris. Wider acceptance, for example, in France for interested parties to conduct dissections resulted only after a post-mortem had been performed in 1407 on the Bishop of Arras. Again, these isolated examinations needed papal support. And in 1482, Pope Sixtus IV, 1414-1484, issued his own decretal, the Cadavera Malefactorum, uniquely and specifically designed for the purpose of dissection which could be performed by any member of the University of Tübingen. Now, that sounds a bit specific, but there were quite a number of people, including artists and including even Michelangelo, who used this bull in order to dissect uh, uh, dead bodies. Despite the specificity of this decretal, what followed gave permission for a much wider cadaveric dissection, and without it, the conceptual idea of anatomy as one of the scientific disciplines and surgery as its practical exponent would not really have been possible. By 1540, England's King Henry VIII, 1491 to 1547, formally united the companies of barbers and surgeons by royal charter and provided the newly formed group with access to four executed felons a year for the particular purpose of dissection. And that's in uh, so-called Anno 32 Enrici Octavio. It's an act concerning barbers and surgeons to be of one company in 1540. Right? The formality of the anatomical surgical union was now enshrined in the legislature with the act to support this charter, and the sergeant-surgeon to King Henry VIII, in effect the monarch's 
principal physician, stressed the importance of the knowledge of anatomy gained through dissection of the corpse, and his words actually remain pretty much prescient 450 years on. Quote, for saith he, it is as possible for a blind man to carve and make an image perfect as a surgeon to work without error in man's body, not knowing the anatomy, unquote. The etiquette of public dissection is articulated too in the intricate rules of decorum enunciated by the two competing universities of Padua and Bologna and sanctioned by the church. To some extent it was this recognised difference in style of the dissection performance at each place as much as the prominent names and reputation of the anatomists attached to each institution that was the main drawcard for international students. Now, initially, dissections took place in convenient locations, as I've said before, like public piazzas and churches. But they gave way eventually to temporary wooden anatomy theatres, which were dedicated to the annual dissections. Even though Vesalius was famous throughout Italy, by the time he arrived in Bologna, he was forced to dissect his bodies in the open, in a makeshift wooden amphitheatre that had been hastily erected in the Church of San Francesco and it was soon realised that definitive bricks-and-mortar theatre anatomia were needed, and both Padua and Bologna were as much able to be discriminated in the design of their individual theatres as by their actual protocols of dissection. Padua's theatre, designed in 1594 by her prolific professor of anatomy, Hieronymus Girolamo Fabricius ab Aquapendente, who preferred to be just called Fabricius, 1537-1619, was an austere auditorium, with its observation benches rising as six concentric galleries from a central dissecting table. And you can go to Padua, to uh, Palazzo Bo, to see this, and you can stand at the base where the cadaver was and look upwards and see how cramped this vertical gallery uh, basically was. The room was capable um, of holding up to 300 spectators, with each at a vantage point where no one onlooker was more than 30 feet away from the action. And um, this, by the way, was still used as a practical teaching area for dissection until 1872. It's possible, as I've said to today, to stand where the cadaver was placed. You look upwards at the wooden gallery, imagining how the audience would have been cramped together, unable to sit, with the exception of Fabricius himself, and under candlelight, it would have been very difficult to see much. Conditions would have been stifling, with an overwhelming stench of dead flesh that those who succumbed would have fainted virtually standing up. You can only really appreciate that when you go and see that place. By contrast, Bologna's theatre, begun around 1639 in the Palazzo del Archiginasio, was a masterpiece of Baroque architecture, formulated as a more typical auditorium with progressive observation points further and further away from a large marble central dissecting table. Each person's position reflected their academic or political status and the imposing room was, is ornately decorated with wooden statues of anatomy luminaries and the meticulous écorchés, which are the skinned statues sculpted by Bologna's finest wax modeller and woods craftsman Ercolalelli. Both places taught anatomy, but both examined the discipline in a different way, attracting a different set of iconic teachers. 
Padua as a university was founded in 1222, much earlier than Bologna, and started life principally as a law faculty, soon branching out into medicine and attracting over the centuries the great anatomists Andreas Vesalius, Raul de Colombo, Gabriel Fallopius, Fabricius himself, William Harvey, Adrianus Bigelius, Thomas Bartholin, and Giovanni Battista Morgani. To the non-anatomists, these names may not mean much, but they included those who define many of the basic bodily structures recognised by anatomists and surgeons today during operations, and in the cases particularly of Vesalius and Morgani, Morgani was 1682 to 1771, assured the international fame, really, of Padua's anatomy department. Morgani, with his dual doctorate in medicine and philosophy, was honoured by the Royal Society of England in 1724, the Academy of Sciences of Paris in 1731, the Imperial Academy of St. Petersburg in 1735, and the Academy of Berlin in 1754. Morgani's centrally important post-mortem dissection of a person and his correlation of their symptoms in life with the findings after death was the forerunner of the field of pathology. His masterpiece, the De Sedibus et Causis Morborum per Anatomum Indagatis, 1761, collated over 600 autopsies he'd personally conducted after following the patient through their illness in life, and it was the most comprehensive approach towards disease up until that time um, ever written. Actually, Morgani's German students were so respectful of his approach that they erected a statue of him in their common room near the anatomical theatre in 1769, just before he died. Even more as a mark of respect, one 18th century physician, Puccinotto, wrote that, quote, if all anatomical findings uh, made by Morgani should bear his name, probably one third of the human body could be called Morgani's. Um, by comparison, the Bolognese might not have attracted the great anatomical celebrities, but they did things in a much grander style. And when you go and visit the building, look at the comparison between Padua's Palazzo Bo and Bologna's um, uh, Archiginasio, as it is called, the building was actually completed in 1737. It's extremely ornate, but what we're seeing in Bologna has been rebuilt after it was hit by a bomb in the Second World War uh, War on the 29th of January 1944. So it's a, a complete do-over of the anatomical theatre. Um, Bologna, I think, also was in part complicated by its graduates who are unable to certify their degrees unless they first swore an allegiance to the Catholic faith. Mendinus's 1320s dissection curriculum was established in Bologna as a blueprint for the rest of Italy, but he could never have foreseen the way his beloved anatomy would be transformed in the city into the sort of garish spectacle that it became through the 16th to the 18th centuries. The conduct of these dissections was initially orderly and only later on took on a kind of carnival atmosphere. The previsalian anatomist Alessandro Benedetti 1450 to 1512, had outlined his prescriptions for how such a public dissection should run, performing many of them in Venice and Padua. And he, in his book Anatomice, or more his manual, Benedetti dedicates the structure 
of this manual as was typical for the period to the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I. But in his introduction, he sends a sort of mixed message with the ardent hope that the emperor himself will attend to see this, quote, horrifying task, an object worthy of a special theatrical presentation. So even back then, the idea of anatomization or dissection had some kind of uh, theatricality to it. Benedetti keenly knew his audience, for example, and the cross-disciplinary power of his presentations, inviting local philosophers along to the dissections of the brain and politicians to his examinations of the heart. By the time Berengario de Carpi, 1460-1530, had taken over as the lector in surgery at Bologna's studium, somewhere between 1502 and 1527, he boasts of an audience of over 500 students, although it is really doubtful if there was such a capacity. And in that presentation, to which he refers in detail in his commentaria, he displayed the placenta from an executed pregnant woman, a presentation that would have found the greatest and most salacious interest among students and laymen alike. If Padua and Bologna may be seen in their dissections as stylistically in competition, then I would say that it is the Paduan model which prevailed. In keeping with Bologna's theatre looking more like a cathedral than a lecture hall, the German student Baldassar Hessler, 1508-1567, observing Vesalius' mid-dissection, describes the atmosphere as very sedate when compared with that of um, Paduan. There's a book uh, written by him, which is Andreas Vesalius's first public anatomy at Bologna in 1540, an eyewitness report, together with his notes on Matthias Curtius's lectures, who was a physician, on Anatomia Mundini. Hessler actually attended 26 lectures by Vesalius uh, and various demonstrations. He was also a student of Martin Luther. Um, when Vesalius visited Bologna, he performed his dissections in front of 200 people, examining one hanged criminal and vivisecting live dogs in an atmosphere that the master anatomist himself described as, quote, elegant, unquote. And he rhapsodised on the sober professionalism of the dissection room, something he was clearly not used to at home. In Padua, the demonstrations were by all accounts constantly interrupted by heated and boisterous crowds too busy passing around bits of the body to the back rows and either loudly debating their feel and texture or slipping out of the amphitheatre and making off with them. The acrimony of Padua might have rubbed off somewhat as by the time Vesalius visited Bologna again in 1544, one of the audience, Francesco Pozzi, relates that things had degenerated into a much more aggressive debate where the fights between Vesalian disciples and Galenic adherents frequently descended into chaos. Um, by 1586, the church actually had intervened in order to settle these raucous disputes and the papal legate Cardinal Salviati had been charged with writing a formal decree designed to control the conduct and performance of the Bolognese Anatomy Theatre. For this luxury, the running costs were no longer the responsibility of the students, and they fell onto the shoulders of the anatomy professor himself. Things became so regulated that the theatre entrance was then guarded by four salaried um, scholars whose task it was to exclude those deemed likely to create any disturbance.
Now, whilst most other European theatres did follow this Paduan model, the Anatomy School, for example, in Griswold, which is in Mecklenburg in northeastern Germany, employed bouncers at the front door, and in 1750 it was probably one of the few dissection halls to fashion itself left uh, uh, in the Bolognese style. The Dutch, however, developed their Theatre Anatomia more along very solid religious lines, turning them at those times when there were no dissections being performed into public art galleries and popular well-stocked libraries. On show were the coin and coral collections of her principal anatomists, the so-called Praelectors Anatomia, packed alongside the skeletons of an English pirate and a pygmy. The new Waghaus, or Weyhaus, or Sneeburch, so-called Cutting Castle, in Amsterdam, was built in 1693 in a more ornate manner than the sombre Paduan-style theatre, paying homage to her longest-serving prelector Anatomia, that's really like a sort of um, chief coroner or chief medical officer of the day, um, Friedrich Reich, and adorning the new building with Rembrandt's renditions of the anatomy lessons of Reich's predecessors, Nicholas Tulp and Jan Diamond. Uh, this uh, is an issue discussed uh, in another podcast on the Dutch anatomy paintings, or so-called anatomy lesson paintings. Just 50 kilometres southwest of um, uh, Amsterdam, Leiden's dissecting rooms had developed worldwide acclaim, preceding every anatomization with devout prayer and decorating its walls with paintings that portrayed the vanitas motif. Leiden had pictures festooned with extinguished candles, timepieces, skulls and dead insect-infested flowers that symbolically echoed the ephemeral nature of human existence and experience. This was part of the so-called vanitas symbolism of its imagery. And those viewing these paintings would have been well-versed in the visual symbolism and the pictorial metaphors. The protocols of dissection were actually, in Leiden, established by one of Fabricius's students, Peter Poor, 1564-1617, who became Leiden's professor of anatomy and who designed its theatre in 1589. Poor was also one uh, the one to influentially transform the Dutch anatomies into little morality plays, adding Latin mottos onto the walls that warned of the dangers of a criminal life, where one's ultimate destiny might be actually to end up either on the dissecting tables or as a hanging skeleton in the dissection rooms. Paul's austere piety in particular shaped the rules of conduct of the anatomy dissections, and he specifically prohibited, for example, any laughing or idle chit-chat during the anatomizations. His dissection halls were solemn places, typically attended by philosophers, botanists and astronomers, each sharing a common language, for which dissection of the body was a motif concerned with the seminal issues surrounding piety and death. And in this vein, many anatomists were expected to precede their love of anatomy with a formal preliminary training in divinity, history or philosophy. For example, William Hunter and Herman Berhave, Paolo Mascagni, they all studied theology before they did anatomy. Alessandro Benedetti, prior to studying medicine, was an historian. 
It was also not uncommon for professors to be appointed in dual specialties, even when some were ignorant of the faculty they were professor of. Brahav, for example, knew very little about botany when he was appointed Leiden's botany professor, and it was only after his appointment that he made an effort to learn the subject, holding daily botanical lectures at the Hortus, the garden, at seven every morning before he would attend his clinical rounds. If the reality of the dissecting halls was not sufficiently graphic, there would be those like William Hogarth, 1697-1764, the English caricaturist, who could remind one and all of the real purpose of dissection after death, namely retribution. Hogarth's love of animals lay cruelty towards them as society's most serious and punishable crime. And in his four stages of cruelty, which was executed as a caricature in 1751, Hogarth shows the fate of his protagonist, Tom Nero, a man who cannot control his brutality towards animals. In one picture, Nero is graphically shown terrorising a dog by inserting an arrow into its rectum, and in the next, senselessly beating a poor coach horse. Further along, Nero has morally degenerated from simple theft to the vicious seduction and murder of his pregnant lover that sees him severing her neck. And in the latest image, which is the one that interests us, its fourth stage, which Hogarth has called the reward of cruelty, Nero lies prostrate on the dissection table, justifiably anatomised for his sins. Uh, The scene is one of carnage. The hangman's noose is still knotted around his neck, and he sits up almost awake in suffering, his eye being enucleated, pulled out by a smiling dissector, his innards trailing into a bucket that, brimming over one man, doles out like link sausages to an eager dog. His sinister left finger points to a heated vat of boiled-down bones to remind other transgressors of their ultimate fate. And sitting at the centre of the activity in this caricature is the president of the College of Surgeons, the consultant John Freak of St Bartholomew's Hospital, who looks himself more judge of proceedings than a surgeon. Um, Hogarth actually had a great love for dogs and frequently painted himself with them, along with the images of birds that he kept at his Chiswick home. And he was certain that there would be great penitence after death for any cruelty shown animals in life. Each of his prints was sold with an accompanying verse, which was written in very high moralistic tone by his friend the Reverend James Townley. That the cadaver in the picture is Nero is evident by a rather distinctive tattoo on his arm. The identifiability of the corpse is deliberate in a fictional character. Uh, By contrast, for example, Gunther von Hagen's in his body worlds was taken to task for demonstrating some of his plastinated cadavers with tattoos, which might have served as distinctive points of personal recognition. I should mention also that Hogarth had a rather high opinion of himself. He was influential enough to encourage parliamentary friends to pass legislation, which was called the Engraving Copyright Act of 1734, also known as the Hogarth Act, and that was specifically designed so that he could receive royalties for any copies of his work, which each had to carry the notation, quote, designed by W. Hogarth, published according to the Act of Parliament, February 1st, 1751. 
but built into the these dissection halls were the features of their ultimate and gradual demise. The appetite for the public spectacles of dissection had uh, waned. For example, by the end of the 17th century, there was a dramatic decline in overseas students in Bologna, as an example, in part attributable to the demand that all university appointments only be restricted to Bolognese citizens, almost regardless of their curriculum vitae or merits. As Ruth Messbarger um, uh, has written, uh, a historian from St. Louis, Bologna, previously called La Dotta, the learned, have now become La Grassa, the fat. Um, she's written a wonderful book on uh, called The Lady Anatomist, Life and Work of Anna Morandi Mansolini by U Chicago Press about 10 years ago now. The teachable anatomy, at any rate, ultimately had discovered the finite territory of the subject. Uh, and it meant that there was little new, really, to publicly impart with the break-off of those sciences, such as physiology, which was reliant upon the laboratory, and pathology, more dependent on a kind of personal relationship between the observer and the microscope. And both specialties pushed the main clinical and education focus away from the theatres of dissection. And as a consequence, the ter cherished, rather cherished, dissection rooms were no longer the engines of research that they once were, and particularly in the 18th century as the study and emphasis shifted to the reproductive system of women, the anatomy departments busied themselves with a research profile that incorporated human development and embryology, and this is where the shift came. The establishment, too, in the late 18th century in England of the teaching hospital structure linked the infirmaries to the universities, often bypassing the antiquated anatomy halls and creating specialised departments which reflected the training schedules of junior doctors and, I suppose, which centred the medical teaching experience into the clinic and away from the anatomy room. The somewhat archaic emphasis on anatomical showmanship also gradually disappeared, but with each of these means of change, perhaps the most potent was the social sense of something whose time was over. And we're talking really about the demise of public anatomizations and the public entering into the anatomy room. The public anatomies, just like the state-sanctioned execution of criminals, were eventually relocated to exclusive, more private environments and were accompanied by a seismic shift in the public sensibility for what was considered acceptable and what barbaric. Today, autopsies are private and forensic, but they too are under threat. The exponential rise in the number of post-mortems in the public hospitals up until the 1970s reflected the clinical approach to disease that taught each student and doctor to follow their patient through illness either to a good or a bad outcome. Beyond the latter was the further learning experience that autopsy provided in the examination and annotation of every organ, regardless of whether it was implicated in the patient's death. And that approach to dissect an infirm death as much as a healthy life didn't come from nowhere, and it was the product of clinicians like René Lenec, 1781 to 1826, whose invention of the stethoscope integrated what we as physicians could see, feel and hear with the consequences of disease, particularly things like pulmonary tuberculosis. Before the advent of the X-ray, there was until then really nothing else that was an objective measure 
to confirm a clinician's suspicions regarding the cause and the course of illness, short of radical surgery or the post-mortem examination. So this is the development, really, of clinical practice and then the clinical aids, the stethoscope and x-rays, which changed the nature, then, ultimately, of autopsy practice. The technical conduct of each autopsy, what could be considered its kind of rules of engagement, were also written in stone by the great German pathologists Karl Rokotansky, 1804-1878, and Rudolf Virchow, 1821-1902. Now, these were not mere names when we studied medicine, as both loomed large in the weekly post-mortems we were expected in the 1970s to attend, participate in, and to present. Rokotansky was almost but not completely oblivious to the power of the microscope, and he demanded an exactness in the visual appreciation of the autopsy that mirrored what his colleagues in the adjoining anatomy rooms had expected out of dissection of the cadaver. He was, after all, the one who described transecting the airway and the esophagus and by cutting the posterior attachments through a wide sternal incision, pulling the entire sweep of organs out for a leisurely examination. Following his technique, it's remarkably easy to eviscerate a whole person, and it's somewhat like wrenching an ear of corn from its husk. Virchow, on the other hand, was far more methodical and reserved, preferring to start his examination from the head and systematically working his way down, noting everything in his path, even when a patient might have died of a perforated appendix, for example. There are a number of reviews of variant autopsy techniques, and there's an exceptional one by Rössler, which is a classic, R-O double S-L-E. Besides those, for example, described by Rokotansky and Verkov, there are separate historical autopsy protocols which have been outlined for those interested by Albrecht, Fischer, Gon, Heller, Letouillet, Nauwerk, Zenker. There are a number of these. Both the Gon and Letul techniques are uh, really Rokotansky modifications, removing the neck, thoracic and abdominal organs as an organ block with the urogenital system. But it's an interesting uh, subject on its own. The backlash against all these routine autopsies, however, came in 1956 in the form of an article in the American literature published by the physician epidemiologist Isaac Starr, 1895-1989, who made it somewhat his mission, really, to eradicate what he thought were unnecessary autopsies, and which offered, according to him, nothing useful, and which he felt overburdened the already sagging health service. It's an exceptional article called The Potential Values of Autopsy Day, an editorial in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association in 1956. From then on, there would be many potential excuses for autopsies to decline as they have done, to perilously low levels. And for some, it's the pressure of work or the need to conduct basic science research that has cut down their post-mortem experience. For others, there's the argument that a post-mortem might represent an unnecessary exposure uh, to HIV, in HIV or hepatitis-positive cases, where little additional information might be likely to be gained. The link pathologists have to the new molecular and genetic biology also means that they can diagnose conditions before death without the need for formal autopsy.
So as a result of all these things, really few pathologists nowadays outside of a coroner's office currently achieve quite the degree of experience with autopsy that would be expected of a specialist. And it stands, I suppose, in stark contrast to the public's fascination with the PM, the post-mortem, stimulated as it is by the plethora of CSI television shows or by the riveting post-mortem evidence in high-profile televised murder cases. One might say that here the minutiae of pathologic and forensic data have given the county or the crown pathologist the sexy image of a rock star. In the uh, next podcast, we'll move to what I've called the anatomization of art, a perfected anatomic realism, talking about perhaps speculating on the dissecting habits and the differences in dissecting habits between Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo Buonarroti. Thank you.